if you've grown up in this part of the world, most likely you'll get malaria once or twice in your lifetime or even more. The last time I was a teenager, I could say maybe 13, 14 years old. That's Brian Tarimo. He's a scientist working at the Ifakara Health Institute, a disease research center in Tanzania. Luckily, as you grow older, you tend to build some immunity against the disease. So I could say it's been a very long time since I've had malaria. He's trained in the fields of molecular biology, bioinformatics, and gene editing. Or, to put it in a slightly less accurate but much cooler sounding way, Brian Tarimo designs mutant mosquitoes. He doesn't do this for fun. He's trying to end malaria. Even though it's been a while since he's had it, Brian recalls the symptoms of malaria well. It's a horrible experience, uh, very feverish, and then joint pain, muscle pain. Yeah, feels like a a very, very nasty hangover, I could say. (laughs) Not every case of malaria is the same. When he was a kid, Brian watched his mother struggle with a particularly awful variant of the disease. I didn't know it then. They kind of didn't tell us the case, so we don't worry. But later on, we found out it was cerebral malaria. If untreated, cerebral malaria can cause you to lose consciousness, fall into a coma, even die. Luckily, Brian's mom was rushed to the hospital. They must have given us some form of chloroquine. And, and, and at that stage, it has to be intravenous because you, you really need to get the drug working as soon as possible. Years later, Jane, who was Brian's girlfriend at the time and is now his wife, also contracted malaria. So this one day she was out shopping with her mom and she was really, really sweating, tired. You think you're just fatigued, malaise, or you've been working very hard. Her mom was like, okay, let me just take you to a hospital and see what's going on. The hospital gave Jane an IV and collected a blood sample. Her lab tests revealed something alarming. She had an extremely high number of parasites that uh, the hospital were like, we are not letting you out. We have to admit you. Today, Brian also worries about keeping his five-year-old daughter from getting the disease. Some 600,000 people die of malaria every year, and the vast majority of them are children. Whenever we're outside or playing, we make sure she has mosquito repellent on to ensure that she's not bitten, using bed nets, window screens, and humigating potholes where they could lay their eggs. His daughter hasn't gotten malaria, and both Brian's mom and his wife recovered from the disease. But many people don't. Think of everyone who has ever died. Not in the last week or the last year or the last century, but since the beginning of our species. There's a credible argument to be made that more than half those deaths were in some way attributable to mosquitoes. This tiny annoying thing that for a lot of people is just kind of a summer nuisance you deal with by spraying some bug repellent or something, is, by a wide margin, the deadliest creature human beings have ever had to contend with. And thanks to climate change, mosquitoes carrying deadly diseases are starting to show up in parts of the world where previously, they'd barely existed. In California, in France, in Canada. Diseases from other parts of the world are popping up in Southern California, and now two health departments are asking people to heed the warnings about mosquitoes and dengue fever. The increase in extreme weather events associated with our warming planet provide more opportunities for standing water where the biting blood suckers breed. And with the number of invasive mosquitoes in Canada rising, that this is going to be a problem that isn't going away and we need to start addressing it. Scientists are addressing this public health crisis. 
And one of the ways they're doing that is by trying to eradicate the link between mosquitoes and these debilitating diseases they carry. It's tireless work, and it's taking place all over the globe, from volcanic plateaus in Hawaii to literal mosquito factories in Colombia. It takes the form of everything from vaccines to genetic engineering. But it's also the kind of work that is challenging our ability to predict the bizarre, unintended consequences that might come about as a result. And that part, it turns out, might be almost as difficult as the science itself. I'm Omar Lakad, and this is Without. On today's episode, mosquitoes. Even if we can figure out a way to obliterate these things that have been bugging us for so long, should we? Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So if we remove the mosquito from the history of the planet, our modern world order would look completely different. That's Tim Weingart. He's a Canadian transplant who's now a history professor at Colorado Mesa University. He wrote a book called The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. From Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown during the American Revolution, to Alexander the Great's about face in India at the Indus River Valley, to the rise and fall of Rome within the Pontine Marshes, we forget that a lot of the time it's not so much human agency that's deciding these historical events as outside influences, and the mosquito, bar none, has had the biggest impact on shaping and forming these events in the larger trajectory of, of our civilization. In hindsight, that shouldn't be particularly surprising. We're not exactly a species that likes to downplay our own agency. But it does raise the forward-looking version of the question. If we're so used to an overblown sense of certainty about our history, how can we be certain our future won't be more of the same? How can we predict, with any real accuracy, what the consequences of something like wiping out mosquitoes will be? But at least the good news is, we're not trying to kill them all. Very few mosquito species of the 3,700 mosquito species are capable of transmitting these pathogens, and most don't do it very well at all. So there's a few most wanted on that mosquito list. Including the Anopheles mosquito that carries malaria, and the Aedes aegypti that carries yellow fever, Zika, and dengue fever. Nobody is promoting the eradication of all mosquitoes. Bats eat them, birds eat them, fish eat the the pupa and eggs that are on the top of the water. So no one's promoting that, and I need to be very clear about that. 
All right. Um, Recording in progress. I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but can you take me back to the genesis of mosquitoes as a reporting topic? How does how does this start? How does a person end up spending a year of their life <laughs> talking to people about mosquitoes? 20 years ago, when I was interviewing for an internship at the Globe and Mail newspaper in Canada, I was asked by the manager doing the interviewing who my favorite Globe reporter was. I had an easy answer, Stephanie Nolan. Everybody says Stephanie Nolan. Today, Stephanie is a global health reporter for the New York Times. One of her most recent series is this absolutely massive and thorough multi-part explanation of the war on, you guessed it, mosquitoes. I thought I was doing a really straightforward news story. I knew there were a couple of interesting new technologies to control mosquitoes that were getting pretty far down the clinical trial pipeline. And I just thought, I'll just do like a little sort of roundup of that. I'll, I'll call some people. So Stephanie started working the phones. It didn't take very long when I started calling people for them to say, yes, there are some new technologies, which is good news, but also it's taking a decade for these things to get through clinical trials and get approved by the World Health Organization and get to the people who need them. And we don't have that kind of time. Like very quickly, the kind of common thread in those conversations was some variation of the mosquitoes are winning. Like Tim Weingart said, there are roughly 3,700 species of mosquitoes on Earth. But only a very small subset actually transmit diseases to humans, and it's only the females that bite. They need a blood meal from humans, birds, or mammals to lay their eggs. But the problem is, mosquitoes adapt really, really quickly. And that very small subset we're worried about are essentially untroubled by just about every chemical solution we've used to try and kill them. Bug spray, it ain't gonna cut it anymore. Mosquitoes are evolving to get around everything we throw at them really quickly. That's kind of problem one. And problem two is the mosquito-borne disease threat, as we know it, is changing really quickly in ways that we don't even fully have a grasp on. And climate change is, is the big driver of that. There are some pretty big organizations around the world that are focused on problem number two, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for example. Recently, as part of a $50 million effort, they asked some large chemical companies to open up their libraries to try and get the bug population under control. There's just like a handful of big agrochemical companies around the world that have what are called libraries, the chemical libraries of uh, molecules that could be used for this purpose. So folks who are working on controlling mosquitoes for disease purposes went to these companies and said, will you go through the library and tell us what else you have? Like, what are the possible molecules that we could use? But any chemical that could be used as a mosquito insecticide has to meet a lot of requirements. It has to be something that will hold up to washing. So when people wash their bed nets, they don't come off. And it can't be toxic to people. And you have to think, like, with a bed net, like, babies are going to be lying in the bed at night and they might suck on the net, right? So they had this checklist. They went through the library of 27 million molecules, and there were four. <laughs> four that were active against mosquitoes in a new way that ticked this list. Just four molecules in all the world's chemical libraries. We spend something like $22 billion a year fighting mosquitoes around the world. And for all that money, for all the research and lab work and fancy chemicals, the stuff that has been most effective in actually reducing the transmission of mosquito-borne diseases has been the lowest tech solutions you can imagine. Things like bed nets, better window screens, 
stuff that doesn't require years of trials and regulatory approval. So Stephanie wonders, what if you left the mosquitoes alone and instead used that money to protect people? You know, the southern United States used to have a massive malaria problem. Italy, huge malaria problem. The way all of these places controlled malaria was not by wiping out the mosquito, but by protecting the people. So better houses and environmental management. You move people out of swamps if you have to, right? But some of those solutions, as effective as they've been, are starting to show diminishing returns. Mosquitoes have a lifespan of only about six weeks. They evolve really quickly. Bed nets work great at night, but now you've got more and more mosquitoes biting people in the daytime. A lot of techniques we've developed to fight mosquitoes, particularly across Africa, were also developed for rural regions. Now the bugs are moving into cities. And in cities, mosquitoes' breeding habits are entirely different. Right now, as we have this conversation, the world is in the grip of all kinds of dengue outbreaks in places that have not historically had a dengue problem. Dengue fever, also known as breakbone fever, is another mosquito-borne disease that can be fatal. Like France, for a couple of years now, has had big dengue outbreaks in the summer. France was not a dengue country. The southern United States, uh, California, the mosquito that carries dengue is being reported in all kinds of places. So I think that's a really good example of how mosquitoes don't see borders. And with climate change in particular, lots of places are suddenly hospitable to mosquito species that carry threatening pathogens that have not historically been found there. And so, since mosquitoes carrying deadly diseases are being spotted in new and unexpected places, researchers are having to think on their feet. And the kind of stuff they're coming up with is unlike anything that's ever been tried before. A weird mix of technologies and techniques that are testing the limits of what humans can do to other species on this planet. When was the last time we caught this guy, Justin? I don't think we have since Liz did. All right, so it would be worth taking a malaria sample from this Yes, day. yes, definitely. That's Lisa Crampton with one of the researchers from the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project. They're under a canopy of lush green trees, freeing a little brown and white bird from a net. It's rainy, so Lisa's wearing an anorak and a baseball cap to stay dry. you got to kind of stabilize their leg, get the feathers out of the way, and get your fingers out of the way. Lisa spends many of her days out here in the forest on the hunt for the akikiki, a gray bird with a white mask around its eyes. It's in the Hawaiian honeycreeper family, and it's about five inches long from head to tail. There are only a handful of akikiki left because mosquitoes with malaria have been biting the birds in record numbers. The Hawaiian honeycreepers are essential to the Hawaiian landscape. Since we couldn't fly to Kauai for this episode, I caught up with Lisa over Zoom. They are responsible for pollination and seed dispersal and pick off all the insects that would otherwise cause insect outbreaks. Without Hawaiian honeycreepers, we do not have the Hawaiian forest as we know it. And without the Hawaiian forest, we have these naked volcanoes in the middle of the Pacific Islands that are just shedding mud into the Pacific Ocean. The rapid decline of the Akikiki shows just how dangerous a single mosquito bite can be. And it's not just this bird that is on the brink of extinction here. There were once 54 species of Hawaiian honeycreeper in the state. Now there are only 17. There are all kinds of reasons for this, from habitat decline to invasive species. But it's clear that avian malaria is wiping them out in massive numbers. The thing is, female mosquitoes really like honeycreepers. 
Lisa says they bite the bird's non-feathered parts, their legs, eyes, and around their beaks. What follows are all of the symptoms we associate with human malaria, including fevers, chills, delirium, liver damage. And so for many Hawaiian honeycreeper species, the bite of a single infected mosquito can result in death. Mosquitoes are a bit of a Goldilocks species. They need just the right temperature and just the right amount of water to breed. And now they've found these conditions in the plateaus of Kauai, where the honeycreeper likes to hang out. So we just ended up with a lot more standing water at the right temperatures in more places, in more months on the plateau, as opposed to the earlier situation prior to climate change, where every few weeks a big storm would come along and wash away any potential mosquito breeding habitat. Generally, the warmer it is, the quicker the mosquito breeding cycle. And as a result, if you're trying to fight this thing and the air temperature is rising and there's less rain than there used to be, we humans have less and less time to stop them. Honeycreepers have been around in Hawaii for something like 5 million years. But mosquitoes were introduced to the island only about 200 years ago, so the bird hasn't built up any immunity. And since honeycreepers live out in the wild, there's no bed net or window screen that's going to keep mosquitoes away. Lisa and her team are trying to keep the bird alive in spite of all of this. And their solution is, for lack of a better way of describing it, mosquito birth control. She's going to walk us through the science of this. But it starts with tweaking a bacteria called Wolbachia that some mosquitoes naturally carry. Male and female mosquitoes must be carrying the same strain of Wolbachia in order for the male's sperm to fertilize the female's eggs. Should the male be carrying a different strain of Wolbachia, his sperm will be unable to fertilize her eggs and she will lay unfertilized eggs, so no next generation. So what we have done over the last few years is create lab lines of Hawaii Culex mosquitoes, and then we clear the native Wolbachia infection out of that lab line and introduce a different strain of Wolbachia using tiny little micropipettes into the mosquito. Then, Lisa's lab raises colonies of mosquitoes with the different strains of Wolbachia so they can't reproduce. The females are kept in the lab to keep this new strain going, and the males are released into the wild. So that's mosquito birth control, in a nutshell. Lisa Crampton's team isn't the first to try this technique. It's been done with other strains of mosquitoes in other parts of the world, including in California, where we are seeing bugs carrying dengue fever for the very first time. They have relied on people hiking through the streets with a backpack open at the top and just a trail of mosquitoes coming out and a pickup truck with a canopy on it, and then the canopy's propped open and mosquitoes just trickling out as they drive slowly through the streets. Lisa says they plan to release their male mosquitoes into the wild next year. While we were pulling together this episode, we found that one of the really amusing things about what is otherwise the deadly serious business of mosquito population suppression is this weird mixture of high-tech research and incredibly duct-taped MacGyver-style workarounds. On one of her reporting trips, my friend Stephanie, who you heard from earlier, went inside a mosquito factory in Medellin, Colombia, and what she saw there was... Pretty gross. As you might expect, a mosquito factory is really moist. (laughs) 
Like it's really humid. It's quite warm. It doesn't smell fantastic. There's rooms with these giant white mesh cages. They're kind of the size of a bar fridge and they're stacked on top of each other for rows and rows and rows. And they have the breeding stock in them. Like imagine an egg farm, except it's mosquitoes. They get discarded blood from the blood bank and they put little trays of blood at the top so the females can feed because females need a blood meal before they can lay eggs. And there's little cups with filter paper on them in the bottom of every cage and the females fly down there and lay eggs. They harvest the eggs every day and they put them in these sort of trays of, it's kind of sort of like a variation on fish food, big trays of fish food and water. They hatch into pupa and larvae. I spent a lot of time like hunching over these tubs waiting for the moment when they transitioned into, into adulthood and, and flew out. After that, some of the mosquitoes go back to breeding in the factory and some get packaged up and loaded onto a truck headed for Cali in the south of Colombia. They're using drones to release them over the city. We thought it was going to be like really visually fascinating, but it turns out that when 50 mosquitoes fly out of a drone, <laughs> it doesn't actually look like much. <laughs> so that was a bit of a letdown. In Kauai, where Lisa Crampton and her team are trying to save the honey creeper, Lisa says that a lot of the plateau where they're working is vast and roadless. And so their jerry-rigged release method is by helicopter. You pack the male mosquitoes into these tubes, you get up into the air, and, well, you let gravity do the rest. If one of these males from the lab mates with a wild female mosquito that is carrying avian malaria, her eggs are not going to hatch. Fewer malaria-carrying bugs means fewer birds dying of malaria. Or that's the idea, anyway. On the other side of the planet, in Tanzania, the molecular biologist Brian Tarimo is focused on stopping humans, not birds, from dying of malaria. And he too is optimistic that, through releasing engineered mosquitoes into the wild, we will be able to stop female bugs from reproducing. If you look where malaria is a big problem in sub-Saharan Africa, we have a lot of countries have very uh, weak health systems. Now with genetically modified mosquitoes, you're letting nature do the job for you because mosquitoes will go out there, these genetically modified mosquitoes, they will meet with wild mosquitoes, they will mate, and then through that process they will give their offsprings this modification that you want. So you don't have to transport anything, you don't need to store anything, you don't need to replace anything. The only investment I, I foresee is the initial investment at the beginning in terms of research and infrastructure and training for scientists to understand the technology. That investment is already being made. Both governments and the private sector are spending a lot of money to try and figure this out. And if scientists like Lisa Crampton and Brian Turimo are successful at suppressing the mosquito populations in Hawaii and Tanzania, we'll be able to save millions of human lives each year. We'll be able to keep endangered species from going extinct. And hell, we might even stop entire ecosystems from falling apart. But what happens next? Is it possible to do this kind of work and know with any real certainty what all the consequences might be? When we come back, We'll look at the ramifications of trying to engineer the bite out of a species. That's after this short break. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. 
Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. So, even if we can use science to wipe out the deadliest mosquitoes on the planet, should we? We posed the question to a scientist who opposes genetic modification in pretty much anything you can imagine, from crops to seeds to cattle. They tried to make bulls without horns with gene editing. They said, oh, we're just cutting and pasting. And there's no foreign DNA. But they had used agrobacterium. And with it came all the bacteria, and these bulls were infected with bacteria. That's Vandana Shiva. She's maybe one of the most famous environmental activists alive. And she's talking about what happened when scientists tried to edit the genes of cattle to create bulls without horns. Bacterial DNA turned up in one of the animals. Even though the metaphor is gene editing as if it's a word program, where you do cut and paste, that's how they talk about it, the scissors. No, you still infect with the agrobacterium to introduce that cassette into a living organism. And already, it's not just how I think about it. It's the research that's showing us that one edit leads to 1,500 dislocations and disturbances. We reach Vandana in India at her foundation school and organic farm. To give you a sense of what this place is like, Vandana says they grow 750 varieties of rice here. She calls it Earth University, and students come here to learn about sustainable farming and biodiversity. This is up in the Himalayan foothills. This is where I was born, this is where I returned, this is where I'm right now, and this is the cow shed which I occupy. <laughs> now it's full of books and not cows. Vandana's cowshed-turned-office has a bust of Albert Einstein with all the books. He's had a profound influence on her work. She has a degree in quantum physics and is fascinated by this intersection of science and ecology. But back to mosquitoes. Vandana says, just like in the case of the bulls, if you use science to modify this tiny bug, even if it's to stop it from transmitting deadly disease, there will be unintended consequences. What if, for example, we created mutant bugs that are even better carriers of disease than the ones we're seeing right now? What you will get with these attempts of genetically engineering mosquito is that the parasite will face such pressure that it's going to leap and mutate. And it could now become even more virulent and survive the technology. And then you'll have worse malarial epidemics. She says every good geneticist she's consulted with about this has called gene editing bad science. And she adds that you can't just isolate and alter one part of a mosquito and expect that to be the end of the story. Every gene is related to every other aspect of the organism, to every trait. There's no one gene, one function system. It's a complexity of amazing self-organization. So you change one gene, You change hundreds of thousands and their functions. She believes much more research needs to be done before scientists embark on any of this work. Instead of using science to solve our mosquito problem, Vandana suggests instead to look at what is leading mosquitoes to move to new parts of the world in the first place. Which means 
taking a hard look at climate change. By ignoring the fact that malaria increases when we disturb ecosystems, we know that. I mean, the cities, they've totally blocked the flow of water. And everywhere there's stagnant pools every time there's a rain. That's breeding ground for mosquitoes. So instead of looking at the ecological causes of spread of malaria and correcting that, they're adopting that mechanistic engineering viewpoint. We will engineer our way out of this. And in ecology, there is no engineering your way out. You have to bring back the balance. To say, I'm going to shoot this, I'm going to drive this to extinction. That is not science. That is the illusion. So how do we bring back that balance? That's sort of the crux of the issue. Mosquitoes are on the move because of climate change. People and birds are dying in record numbers. We don't have that many effective vaccines for the mosquito-borne pathogens. But we do have this technology that might save a ton of lives. In an earlier episode of Without, we looked at this idea of using science to try to save a subspecies, the northern white rhino. But in the case of the mosquito, the science is being used to put a species, several species actually, out of business. In both scenarios, that of the rhino and that of the mosquito, we don't really know what comes next. But we do know something comes next so long as we don't tackle the overarching issue, which is what we're doing to the planet. Or, as Stephanie Nolan puts it, I don't think you can take comfort in the fact that this is not your problem right now, because there are a lot of really striking examples just within the last year or so of how quickly that can change. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad, and it's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. This episode is produced by Abby Fentress Swanson with editorial support from Emil Klein. Our associate producer is Kendra Hanna, with fact checking by Daniel Rudzinski and production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners, and research is by Sarah Mathis. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week. I lost my toenails in a swamp in Sudan once because they just kind of rotted. Hey, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>